Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a yearly podcast series that features leading scholars and experts discussing some of New York City's most important historic places and institutions. I'm your host, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History, which produces the show each fall for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Thomas Brothers talks about the Louis Armstrong House in Corona, Queens. This building was the home of the famous jazz pioneer from 1943 to 1971. Although Armstrong is most often associated with New Orleans, his place of birth, that building and the others he inhabited have long since disappeared. The home in Corona thus represents the most important museum honoring the life of the man some musicologists consider America's greatest artist, and it remains virtually untouched from when he lived there. The location was unusual. Most jazz musicians, especially black artists, lived in Harlem. But Corona was the neighborhood Armstrong's young wife grew up in, and it became a place of escape for the famous icon. Soon, because of Armstrong, many others followed, including Count Basie, Dizzy Gillespie, Ella Fitzgerald, Lena Horne, and others. Here, Brothers, the author of three different studies and biographical works on Armstrong, talks about the forces that created Satchmo, as he was called, and how he in turn remade this corner of New York. To hear the rest of this series, visit us at GothamCenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Greetings. My name is Tom Brothers, and I'm delighted to speak to you about Louis Armstrong House in Queens and about Armstrong's career. I've actually published three books on Armstrong's, but I can say that I never get tired of talking about him. I guess there are a bunch of reasons for that, but first of all, among them would be the excellence of his music. Many historians think of him today as the single most important musician in the history of the United States. I've been to the Armstrong House many times while researching my books. They have a great collection of documents, but this house is also the single most important building that memorializes his life. He and his wife, Lucille, bought it in 1943, and they lived there for the rest of their lives. He died in 1971. During those decades, he traveled almost constantly, but the house was always home for him. Lucille grew up in the neighborhood, and her famous husband became part of it. The house exists today pretty much as it was when the Armstrongs lived there. Lucille hired a decorator from Las Vegas who brought a little bit of 1960 glamour out to Queens. The turquoise cabinetry in the kitchen is a real standout, and so are the gold-plated fixtures in the bathroom. But the most important room in the house, in my opinion, is Armstrong's office upstairs. This is where he wrote letters, wrote book reviews, and drafted a number of memoirs. He also liked to turn on his reel-to-reel tape recorder and reminisce. He left behind hundreds of tapes. He liked to put on a record and comment on the music while he played it. And sometimes he even liked to play his trumpet along with the record for the benefit of the tape recorder and of course for the benefit of us today. So this is someone who is a very careful observer and wanted history to get it right. For example, he wrote this document in the last year of his life. He entitled it, Louis Armstrong and the Jewish Family in New Orleans, the year of 1907. The document is 77 pages long, handwritten. He talks about the Karnofsky family who befriended him as a teenager and about a lot of details from his youth. It's the last in a series of autobiographical statements on that period in his life. I published this extraordinary document in my book, Louis Armstrong in His Own Words, and that book also presents a lot of other documents that were written in Queens 
and are now preserved in the museum out there. Armstrong was born in New Orleans in 1901 in a small apartment in this building where his grandmother lived. The reason that his home in Queens is the major monument for his life is that most of the other buildings associated with him are gone. This particular building was torn down long ago. This is only one of only two surviving photos of Armstrong taken during his youth in New Orleans. Here he is with his mother and his sister, everyone dressed up. This photo is kind of a triumphant statement, I would say. It reflects the fact that by age 21, he had worked his way up fairly high on the ladder of being a professional musician in the city, and perhaps as high as anyone who looked like him could actually expect to go. We don't have other photos from his youth, but we do have lots of accounts from him and his friends. He tells us that he learned to sing in church and that his mother's friends applauded his efforts. He also tells us that he hung out with street musicians who talked to him about music and about the blues they were playing on simple tin horns that looked like this. He earned money singing on a street corner with three of his friends, the four of them learning how to experiment with barbershop quartet harmonies. And he watched parades, maybe more than he did anything else. He got to know the various bands and followed them around town. There was a lot of music being played outdoors, and this was a big deal for an impoverished child. All of this music was intensely communal, intensely kinetic, and highly meaningful to the people who were making it. The richness of the situation makes you a little envious, I would say. When I think about this recording that is most identified with Armstrong today, What a Wonderful World from 1967, and about the warmth that comes through that performance, I think about these communal experiences in New Orleans. His lucky break came around 1913, age 12 or so. A musician he admired from parades took him under his wing. That was the cornetist Joe Oliver, who's pictured here with his student in 1922, the year Oliver enticed him to move to Chicago, where his career blossomed. Armstrong arrived in Chicago as one of the most outstanding representatives of New Orleans jazz. This is a photo of the King Oliver Creole Jazz Band, which had become the leading band on the south side of Chicago. Oliver is second from right, Armstrong third from right, and at the piano is Lil Hardin, who would, in a year, become Armstrong's second wife. From Armstrong's glory days in Chicago, there are not many buildings remaining. Here's a picture of the Vendome Theater. Armstrong said that it was here where he worked out his modern style of playing jazz trumpet around 1926. That is no small thing, for that modern style that he is talking about became the focal point for all ambitious jazz soloists for the next 10 years or so. Here's the group that accompanied his modern playing on one of the most famous series of phonograph records from jazz history, Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five. Armstrong dazzled everyone with pieces like Potato Head Blues, Hotter Than That, West End Blues. Serious jazz fans today know these pieces by heart, actually. You never get tired of listening to them, just as you never get tired of hearing the great classics. They are dazzling in their improvisational virtuosity. Nobody had ever heard playing like this before. In 1929, he moved to New York City and started playing at places like the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. Musically speaking, he took over the town. In New York, he also started to record popular songs. 
And during the next few years, his career expanded until he became the biggest seller of phonograph records in the United States in 1932. These are legendary recordings like Stardust and Sweethearts on Parade. His style was both radical and easily accessible. It was full of deep, bluesy expression and dazzling virtuosity. Somehow he was able to do all of that at the same time. He became an amazing interpreter of popular songs with huge influence on all jazz singers that followed. Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Bing Crosby, many, many others. As the great saxophonist Sonny Rollins put it, Armstrong discovered the Rosetta Stone for interpreting popular songs. He was able to take a song that didn't have much potential and turn it into something that people loved. For many black people, he was a hero of immense stature. Here's a photo of him returning triumphantly to New Orleans in 1931. He's up at the top left corner of the screen. Yet, to say the obvious, his career was blocked by racism for his entire life, not just in New Orleans, of course, but almost everywhere he went, not being allowed to enter restaurants or front doors of hotels, not being introduced on a radio show, threats of terrorism for having an integrated band, on and on it went. Like most black entertainers of his generation, he keenly felt the vulnerability of speaking out. Yet he did speak out in the late 1950s. He astonished everyone by calling out President Eisenhower to send troops to Arkansas to help let the little children go to school. But for the most part, he accepted the realities of racism in this country and was simply glad to have a chance to create and perform his music. The first phase of his life was the formative years of New Orleans. The second phase was when he became the most influential soloist in jazz history. And the third was his emergence as a great interpreter of popular songs. The fourth and final phase was his ascent as a beloved entertainer. The 1950s saw bestsellers like the famous album of duets with Ella Fitzgerald. 1964 brought the surprise number one hit, Hello Dolly, and in 1967 came What a Wonderful World. He was loved all over the world. He traveled on tours sponsored by the State Department of the United States, and he gained the nickname Ambassador Satch. Which brings us back to Corona, Queens. I'll leave you with a little story. When Armstrong moved out there, it was kind of an unusual thing to do. Most jazz musicians lived in Harlem. That was an easy location from which to get around Manhattan for gigs or to get out of town on trains and buses. Armstrong living in Corona was unique. And I've said what drew him out there was his young wife who grew up in the neighborhood. But once he got there, he liked it. In Harlem, he was a celebrity who had trouble being left alone. That was less of a problem in Queens where people treated him like a neighbor. So it was a relaxing place to be. And then an interesting thing happened. He had a magnetic personality and he loved to hang out with other jazz musicians. A lot of them started moving to Queens as well, just to be able to be close to him. And then it got to be a community. Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, Roy Eldridge, Ella Fitzgerald, Jimmy Heath, Milt Hinton, Lena Horne, the list goes on and on. Ambassador Satch was not only a legendary musician and a beloved entertainer, he was a magnetizing presence. That's all for now, and I hope you enjoy your visit to Queens. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you find your podcasts, or online at gothamcenter.org, where you can learn more about the rest of our programming 
here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center at the Graduate Center City University of New York. Be safe, everyone, and enjoy Open House New York weekend.